Good, good. In the social media world, there are opportunities for those who follow you or others on social media to communicate with you. In Facebook, this is called posting on someone's wall. And I've had a few that have posted on my wall on Facebook. Uh, St uh, Steve Gundry has done that with the opportunity to make available previews of Sunday school lessons. And so he wanted me to know that. And so on my Facebook wall, he posted. Now there is something else as well. And uh, I don't know if we'll be able to do it this morning, but there is uh, a post that I uh, put up of a fellow who wanted to be a professional wrestler who became a pastor. And so he baptized, as you would expect a wrestler to. Um, that's just the picture, isn't it? Okay. Well, what he did is that he took the baptism candidate and slammed him in the water, jerked him up and slammed him down again. You know, sometimes your, your life outside the ministry interferes with the ministry and interjects itself there. I always wanted to be a baseball player. I don't know what that would look like in the baptistry, but um, that's, uh, that's what I always wanted to be. Well, there is an opportunity then to communicate via social media uh, to others by posting on their wall. Uh, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg was not the first to imagine that when it came to Facebook. Uh, back in Daniel chapter 5, God posted on someone's wall. Uh, King Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, was uh, extremely, outrageously, unimaginably wicked and arrogant with the things of God. And in a drunken party in Daniel chapter 5, he pulled out some vessels that were to be reserved for the worship of God and for sacred things in the name of the God of the Old Testament and used them in a riotous party in Babylon. And God drew a line in the sand with him and even did more in Daniel chapter 5 and beginning in verse number 5. It said, In the same hour... The fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. It's the quicker, quickest act of sobering up in the history of drunkenness. It's what happened with him. His countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. Literally, the Aramaic, and this is written in Aramaic, says that the knots of his loins were loosed. It's a very ungracious thing. The English translation is more delicate than the Aramaic. But the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. When Belshazzar engaged in grotesque arrogance against God's word and the things of God, God posted judgment on his wall. And I want us to begin with, analyze Daniel chapter 5, and then I want us to apply it. In analyzing Daniel 5, it's organized around four actions of 
four main characters or four main elements. And the first is in verses 1 through 4 where Belshazzar desecrated the cups. He's throwing a wild riotous party which was typical of kings <coughs> in his day. And the, um, the party grows to such a point that he pulls out holy vessels that none of his predecessors would ever touch. These vessels were moved from Jerusalem to Babylon and perhaps uh, placed in the royal treasury or a museum, but they were treated with respect. In fact, it was unusual for any king of that day to desecrate or misuse sacred vessels or vessels considered sacred, cups that were considered sacred of any other faith or religion and to do that. And, but Belshazzar was so far down the line with his drunkenness that he pulled it out. Now the wild and unimaginable thing that a couple of ancient historians note is that as they were having this party, the Persians were outside the walls of Babylon about to invade. But Belshazzar was so confident in their defenses with the four walls around Babylon that he just threw a party. It may have been a traditional party that he would not cancel. It may have been uh, an attempt to embarrass or to antagonize the Persian army that while they are outside the wall about to invade, that uh, Belshazzar is so uh, powerful and so confident in his ability to defeat the Persian army that he can party. Uh, oftentimes uh, in American history when America has launched a war, a president has gone to play golf to send a message to the opposing, um, to the opposing nation. Uh, president Bush did that with the first Persian Gulf War. Well, in any case, Belshazzar has got this invasion about to take place, but he's confident in the walls, and he's got good reason. There are four walls that surround Babylon, and it's very unlikely anyone will get in through the walls. And so he pulls off the vessels, throws a party, and revises the use of sacred things. He redefines the meaning of these cups and these vessels. He repurposes their use. They weren't to be used for drunken parties. They were to be used for holy worship of God. They meant something. And so by revising and misusing these cups, Belshazzar is actually offending Almighty God by taking something sacred and revising its meaning. I think some of Belshazzar's offspring are with us today in 21st century America. Whenever Jesus is presented as someone that is mild and always compassionate without any reference to his truth or his holiness, he's been revised. Whenever Christianity is presented in such a way to ignore the big issues of Scripture, like creation, the corruption of the fall, uh, Christ, and the conclusion in judgment then Christianity has been revised when it's nothing more than a mild-mannered man standing in the midst of a mild-mannered people, encouraging people to be simply more mild-mannered. Christianity has been revised. If there's no repentance and call to faith in Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection, Christianity has been revised. In fact, I'd say to you, if you're part of a church where the pastor won't tell you to repent, find another church. Whenever the church 
is presented only as the perpetrator of crusades a thousand years ago instead of the one that advances the missionary compassion and love of God, then the church has been revised. Whenever missions is considered cultural imperialism, instead of a manifestation of the love and the grace of God, then missions has been revised. When truth is presented in such a way that it simply doesn't matter, some would say, then truth has been revised. One student was asking his professor, what difference does truth make? And the professor answered, well, do you want the true answer or the false answer? When Christian morality is equated with bigotry and prejudice, then something has been revised. Well, Belshazzar's offspring, I'm afraid, are with us when the human body is presented as something worth nothing more than human trafficking or the use of illegal drugs or immorality, then something sacred has been revised. And this is what Belshazzar has done. And it's not uncommon, even in our own day. But there's a second thing. There are hands that declared a threat. This hand appears and writes a message on the wall. It had to be dramatic because Belshazzar was so far in, from God and so insensitive to the things of God, God had to intervene and do something dramatic to get his attention. And the uh, writing appears in verse number 25. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, upartsen. And we will translate that and explain it in just a moment. So there's Belshazzar who desecrated the cups and hands that declared a threat. And then there's Daniel who deciphered the message. None of the king's uh, astrologers and none of his wise men or counselors can understand the message, nor can they interpret it. It's hard to understand why. They knew Aramaic in which it was written, but apparently they couldn't explain to him the interpretation. And so the queen shows up. Uh, the queen who... Uh, apparently was uh, perhaps his grandmother or a great-grandmother. And she has a memory of a great counselor that helped King Nebuchadnezzar before Belshazzar. And she calls his name and says his name is Daniel and says the spirit of the holy God is in him and he has a history of declaring these things. You see, Belshazzar is so far away from God that the primary interpreter of dreams and visions and matters of wisdom to the king of Babylon has been ushered off the scene and set aside and no one seeks him anymore. They don't listen to him. Belshazzar is that far from God. And so he calls Daniel in and Daniel begins to speak to him in verse number 17. And Daniel does interpret the handwriting upon the wall but beginning in verse 17, Daniel takes the opportunity to chastise King Belshazzar. And his chastisement really is not contained in the four words that are the handwriting on the wall. Daniel just hauls off and lets it rip when it comes to chastisement. Daniel's not only a counselor, Daniel is a prophet. And he speaks like one. And he essentially, in verse 17 to 24, summarizes... What happened in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar? He says, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, the throne, 
and made him powerful over the known world. Anything he wanted, he got done. But then he got arrogant. And because he got arrogant, God sent him into the field as a beast where he ate grass, where he suffered with the dew falling upon him every night. And he had his habitation, his home, with wild donkeys. But then he learned that God is the most high God who sets on the throne whoever he wills, and he rules the nations, and God restored his throne. And he said that to Belshazzar. And then he said in verse number 22, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew this. What God has done here graciously and kindly to the arrogant and the very filthy Belshazzar is that he has placed someone with his word right in the midst of his life. And he's ignored it all these years. And so God got his attention by posting on his wall there in the palace and Daniel declared it. So Daniel deciphered the meaning and then God delivered some justice in verses 30 through 31. There the text says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Greek historian Xenophon and Herodotus wrote of this, and they said that the evening Babylon fell, that Babylon was having a party. Well, this is the party spoken of in chapter 5. What happened is that the walls were impregnable around Babylon. But what the Persian commander did is that he posted some of his army at the north end of a river that flowed into the city and the south end and the rest of his army, he had dig a channel away from the river and divert the river to another place. And so the river that flowed into Babylon had a water level that sank and the army entered into Babylon walking on the riverbed, entering the city. They took the city without incident, and they executed Belshazzar that night. God posts his word somehow, some way on our wall. God is here, and he is not silent. He communicates his word. That's precisely what God does. And the degree to which we are right with God depends on the degree to which we conform to his word. The degree to which we relate rightly to his word. So what do I do to relate rightly to God's word? Well, the first thing is trust God's word. History and prophecy demand that we trust the Word of God. Even the history and prophecy wrapped up in Daniel chapter 5. Well, now the skeptical critics had a field day with Daniel chapter 5 for some time, and they severely criticized and chastised the Bible because they could not find secular confirmation that there ever was a king that ruled over Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. They would argue and they would say that Nabonius was the final ruler over the ancient kingdom of Babylon. There were never ever was any Belshazzar. And so the Bible is wrong. It is in error at that point. Well, they quit laughing around 1854 
when archaeologists dug and they found Nabonius Cylinder and his chronicles. And what we find is that Nabonius really was not fond of ruling. He was more into history and more into religion. And he liked one of the minor gods of Babylon better than he did the major god. And he had to leave the city, and he did so without abdicating his throne. He went about 500 miles south of the ancient city of Babylon and to what is now called Saudi Arabia, where he devoted himself to history and to study and to religion and devotion to some of the, one of the minor gods uh, in the uh, Babylonian um, uh, configuration of gods. And in his place... As a co-ruler and co-regent, he placed his son, Belshazzar. All of this comes from Nabonius's cylinder, which is now on display at the British Museum. And so history does demand, may I say to you, history oftentimes does that. Somebody will criticize the Bible. A bunch of preachers and Christians will grow nervous and become nervous Nellies. They were nervous a week even before and they start doubting the Bible, and they lose faith in it, and God unveils something true that uh, uh, gives secular confirmation to what we already find in the Scripture. History demands that we trust the Word of God, but not only history, but prophecy does as well. Now, you, uh, as you read Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, you've paid careful attention to the book of Daniel, and you recall that back in chapter 2, that Daniel had a vision of future, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of the future kingdoms, and his kingdom was a part of that future. And Daniel came and interpreted that vision and told him that one day the Babylonian kingdom will come to an end. Verses 30 and 31 are fulfillment of that prophecy. It happened just like, just like Daniel said it would. It fulfills Daniel chapter 2. And it fulfills also Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 47, verses 1 through 5. Now, there is a pattern that I've noticed, and I think someone else noticed it before I did, and I don't think this is original with me, but I forget the author and I forget the, uh, uh, the reference and documentation to this. But there, I have noticed a pattern, at the very least, and that is a critic will attack some specific reference in the Bible and will declare the Bible is in error. And a bunch of nervous Nelly Christians will lose their faith in the Bible. And they'll depart from it. And spiritually, they'll grow weak. And they die cold, or they grow cold towards missions and evangelism. They, they grow cold towards worship. And they become formalistic and ritualistic in their worship. Merely formalistic and merely ritualistic. And then about 40 years later, an archaeologist will put his spade into the dirt, and he will unturn or uncover some kind of unique and some kind of significant finding that addresses a biblical text, in fact, addresses the biblical text that the doubters and the critics criticized 40 years before and will substantiate what the Scripture already says. But what has happened in the meantime is that these dear, sweet Christians have lost their faith in the Bible. They're no longer vigorous about missions and evangelism, and they've abandoned any hope of having an inerrant Bible themselves. It's a pattern. It happens over and over and over again. Well, what do I do then when I come upon a passage that gives me trouble in the Scripture? What do I do if I come upon a passage and a critic has criticized the Bible? What do I do? Well, the first thing is to be patient. You may have to wait 40 years, if that's very meaningful to you. 
I will tell you, I've walked with God long enough in His Word and done enough study of the Bible. I, I really doubt the critics before I doubt the Bible, to be honest with you. I always am just a little suspicious when people start criticizing the Scripture. But be patient. Wait. Give it a while. God does not operate according to the critic's calendar. He doesn't do that. But second, do your own research. Do your own research and research everything. Look at everything. Now, what I need to let you know is this. We Christians have been answering criticisms against the Bible for 2,000 years, and there is at least a 2,000-year-old body of literature defending the Word of God. And just about every criticism leveled against the Bible has been persuasively and satisfactorily addressed in the last 2,000 years by someone who trusts the Word of God. The third thing then I would say, and this is more of a conclusion, doubt your doubts before you doubt the Word of God. Trust God. It is perfectly fine, and it is justifiable for you to have the same faith in the Bible that Jesus had when he came to the earth and he believed every bit of it. So uh, a posture of doubt towards the Scripture is never legitimate. Now, if you've got doubts, that's okay. You're welcomed here. You can ask all the questions you want. You can be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. That is perfectly fine here. Some of us have been there. So I don't want you to feel guilty about having questions. That's okay. But make sure you keep your heart ablaze before God in the meantime. Do not grow cold towards His great commission or His Son or any of His truth. Just yield and surrender, and in time, God will give you the answer. But trust God's Word. But second, treasure God's Word. Once in a while, when I was a boy and a teenager, my grandmother would pull me back into the, uh, near, near the closet of her bedroom, and she would go into a safe, and she would open it up, and she would show me some new jewelry that uh, my grandfather had given her. They had had a very rough and very, very difficult life, oh, the first, um, um, the first 25 years of their marriage. My grandfather caused a lot of that. In fact, he caused just about all of it. And he spent the rest of their married life and the rest of his life making it up to her. And so he would uh, buy her jewelry. He knew exactly what she liked and what she wanted, and he would give it to her. And any time he would do that for her, she would show it off to every one of her grandchildren. It's precisely what she did. She treasured that not just because of the jewelry. She treasured it because of the man who gave it to her. It meant the world to her. That reminded me of Psalms 119 verse 11 in the New American Standard. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against God. That's Psalms 119, verse 11. Psalms 119, verse 72 says uh, this, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. And then Psalms 119, one, verse uh, 127, Therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Belshazzar could have treasured and should have treasured the word 
of God. And do you know why? Because Belshazzar was surrounded by older adults who knew the word of God. You've got the queen who witnessed the degradation of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 when God humbled him and basically gave him a heart and mind and behavior like a beast, like a cow, like an oxen. And for seven years he ate the grass and the dew fell upon him. Uh, so he had her, the queen, the queen mother there, uh, available to him to communicate the word of God. And then you had Daniel who was nearby. Now, he was pushed off to the scene. He was pu pushed off to the side, away from the scene. But Belshazzar had the opportunity to hear from Daniel. In fact, it was so important that Belshazzar listened to the older adults in his life that Daniel chastised him in verse 22 again where it says, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew this. You were aware of this, and you should have applied it to your life. And so he had access not only to the queen and to Daniel, but he had access to the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. He was surrounded by older adults who knew the word of God. I would encourage you that if you want to relate rightly to God and his word, listen to the older adults who are godly around you. I have found through the years that they are a shortcut to wisdom. Now that means something. That means that young people cannot ghettoize themselves into a youth ghetto. Oh no, that worries me terribly. Oftentimes does. But we've got to do all that we can to mix with all Christians of all ages who walk with God. That's why a worship service like this is so vitally important. That's why a Wednesday night service like we have is so vitally important. Well, I can't get anything out of Wednesday nights. Well, hey, who said you're ever supposed to get anything out of church anyway? You don't come to church to get. You come to church to give. Perhaps you've got something that you can give, and that's why you attend Sunday school as well. Not to get, but to give. We yield ourselves and serve one another whenever we gather together. Do all that you can that you make sure that you're interacting with godly people who know the Word, so no age ghettos, and then no chronological snobbery. That's a phrase from C.S. Lewis. He taught medieval literature. And he was part of a literary culture that prized new literature over older literature. And he criticized it. Now, you would expect someone who taught uh, three, four hundred-year-old literature to feel that way and to think that. And he said there's the notion in literature today that something is inferior because it's older and something is superior merely because it's newer. And he argued against that, and he said the remedy is to read one old book for every new book that you read. And I must say to you, it's enormously helpful to do, and to do that. For, for about 10 years, I followed, uh, tried to follow that uh, counsel. In fact, I'm a little imbalanced now with older books. But oftentimes, we do that with one another. We think that because it's new, it's superior, and because it's old, it's inferior. And sometimes that even seeps into Christian thinking that those who are younger and those that are newer on the scene and those that have just arrived in leadership are far superior and far more relevant, far more relevant than those who've gone on before. I want to tell you that is the quickest way to a moral and spiritual collapse. And Belshazzar, I hear him in the distance. Can you hear him? He's saying, Amen. Now, what does it mean to treasure God's Word then? Well, one, seek out opportunities to learn it. Be hungry. Be voracious for the Word of God. 
Then know those who know it and those who've mastered it. Everyone needs someone in their lives that has mastered the Word of God. Then learn it with the intention of obeying it. In other words, you go to the Word of God and you've already decided, I'm going to do what it says no matter what it demands of me. My decision is already made. And when you come with that kind of spirit and that disposition before God, that you're going to do it before you even know it, God unfolds himself before you. He rolls back the heavens and unveils himself to the humble heart. God says, this is the one upon whom I will look in Isaiah 66. The one who fears me and trembles at my word. So the degree to which... God, the degree to which God will use you and unveil himself to you is the degree to which you treasure his word. So trust God's word. Treasure God's word. And then tell God's word. God put this Babylonian idolatrous king, Belshazzar, within reach of his word just hours before his death. Oh, now he had had access uh, the 17 years that he was on the throne in Nabonius' place. But even though he had sinned as he had sinned, even though he was sacrilegious to the degree that he was, God came through still just hours before his death communicating the word to him with the handwriting on the wall, through the queen, through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's example. God arranged to get the word to Belshazzar. And God has arranged to get the word to your family. God has arranged to get the word to your friends. God has arranged to get the word to strangers in your circle of influence or in your daily interactions. God has arranged to get the word to everyone in our region. And he is arranging to get the word to all the nations around the earth, that God would deliver this word to Belshazzar just hours before his death indicates the great magnanimous heart he has for every breathing person, everyone on the earth, and God has the same heart for people in our region, in your family, among your friends. And that's our heart here at Beach Haven. And so October 23rd, we've invited John Reed to come visit with us that day, Sunday morning and Sunday night, to share the gospel as an anointed evangelist and invite people to come to Christ. And we want you to be a part of that day. Now, what do I do then to get the word to others? Well, there's several things to do. One is identify. Identify family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and others who concern you spiritually. You're not a judge, but as a fruit inspector, you've got good cause for concern. Identify them. Then intercede for them. Plead with God that he would move upon their hearts and lives. And then investigate. Figure out why is it that they've not come to Christ yet, and why is it that uh, they're, they're not part of a, have a church home? Why aren't they part of a church? And, and then begin to pray about those things and ask God to tear down those barriers. Then invest some time into them. Invest some time into them in order to uh, express your love and your concern for them. 
Uh, we, we got to work on this last week, in fact. We did training last Sunday, and uh, even a couple of days before we did the training on this with our Sunday school teachers and deacons, uh, uh, Sherry Michelle and I got to work on this, and we've seen some fruit and results already. Then invite them to be here October the 23rd, and then inspire. Share these stories in your Sunday school class, and then also ask someone to keep you accountable. God loves your family and your friends and your region enough to give you as a gift to to them. You are God's gift to the world. You are the one who bears the word and delivers it. And so he has put you near them. And by putting you near them, God has put his word near the world that he loves. I would say also, these people here, and even pastors and preaching and other mediums of communicating the Word of God are a gift to you. God loves you enough to bring the Word near to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's why Jesus was both flesh and spirit. As a spirit, he was God, and he could not die. As flesh, he was man, but he could not save. You put that together, and you've got the God-man. As God, he can save. As flesh, he could die. Therefore, we have Calvary. And that's why Jesus bled on the cross. And God loves you enough to place this word right near you and to urge you to come to him. One pastor tells the story of when he was a boy and how his father would oftentimes read to him his favorite story called The Highwayman. And the story is, is that this fella in Revolutionary War times had a sweetheart that he would go visit. And the enemies of the colonies in those days would look for him and hunt him. And they found out he had this sweetheart. And so they posted soldiers around her home. And they set her up in a window at night when she was expecting him to come visit. And they put a musket, loaded musket, right up to her heart. So that if she moved or warned or alerted him that the British soldiers had surrounded her house to ambush him, the musket would go off and penetrate her heart and she would die. Well, he comes upon her home without any awareness of this ambush. And all of the sudden, he hears a shot, and he takes off, and he flees, and he saves his life. But it wasn't a British soldier that fired the shot at him. It was the young lady who moved in such a way to where the musket would discharge and kill her. She died for him. Now, let me ask you something. What do you think that man thought of her for the rest of his life? Tell me about his trust in her after she gave his life for him? Tell me about his adoration for her. Let me ask you, what if by a miracle of God she was able to come back to life? You know what I say? Put a ring on that girl's finger. (laughs) Can you imagine the heart, the devotion, the love, the trust he would have in her. Someone greater than a sweetheart has bled for you. He's risen from the dead, and whatever that man would do for her, the kind of trust and devotion he would give to her, you do that now. 
in our invitation time. We're going to have staff here standing in the front to help you with any spiritual decision you make. But make sure you give it all to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is too worthy a Savior and Master to walk out of here the same. Jesus Christ is too high, holy, and exalted to walk out of here without doing His will in this moment. Why don't you come and give your heart and life and sins to Jesus? He wants them all, and He'll take them graciously if you'll be humble and trust His cross and resurrection. Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. You, you know Christ, you followed Him in baptism, or you need to, you come and become part of Beach Haven. Or maybe there's some other need. We want to pray with you and help meet that. But stand together real quickly. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I finish my prayer, Matt is going to lead us as we sing. Blessed God, I want to thank you for the name of Jesus, and I thank you for the incalculable sacrifices you've endured for the sake of our souls. Thank you that you have made your word clear. And oh God, I pray none of us would ever be so dense and thick and resistant that we would have to have a hand right on our wall. I want to pray that we'd be sensitive even in this moment. Help us in this moment now to trust your promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Help us to treasure your word and your son. And God, I want to pray that you would give us the kind of heart, the burden, the faith that will tell your word to all and the nations. Would you move upon us in this way? And I want to ask that you would work in such a way, O oh God, that not a single shred of your will will be left undone when we say the final amen today, would your Holy Spirit work in that way and gather for Jesus all the love, the adoration, devotion, all the obedience that He intends to have today, that He expects of us. In Jesus' name we pray and for His sake. Amen. You come.